The Trump indictment unsealed. Electoral disaster in Wisconsin and Chicago plus. At two Bud Light, we'll discuss all this and more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Madeline Maddie Kearns, and the notorious M.B.D. Michael Brendan Doherty. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are ExpressVPN and Babbel. More about them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. If you like what you hear here, please... Consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So MBD, we've been told for a couple weeks, critics, skeptics of the Bragg case, you don't know what's in the indictment. Just wait until you see the indictment. We have now seen the indictment, and it is a complete embarrassment. I was listening in the car to coverage Tuesday afternoon on Fox and, and Bill Barr, you know, very sober guy, was reading the indictment just when they got it. And he was asked, so, so what's in there? He's like, well, the, the other crime's not in, in here. I was like, that, that, that can't be true. There's no way that you have this whole indictment and you don't specify the other crime that supposedly makes this falsification of records into a felony. But lo and behold, it doesn't say. It doesn't say what the other crime is. Yeah, so you're left to assume, and, um, you know, the fact that this is done so amateurishly, right? Like, I mean, because people, there was a buildup for almost a month now that this might be coming, and people are wondering, okay, they've had a lot of time, this office has had a ton of time to work on it and to improve it from... Uh, Alvin Bragg's predecessor, who didn't want to go forward with it. And they seem to have made it more amateurish and more unserious and flip and more lawless. I mean, it, like, you couldn't have scripted this better from, like, a Tom Wolfe perspective. You know, the guy who is taking gun felonies in New York City, gun possession felonies, and busting them down to misdemeanors is now trying to take this victimless misdemeanor where fraud, you know, basically he's charging him with Trump with defrauding himself, except not even defrauding himself, just writing the wrong entry into his own bookkeeping. There's not a single person in the world involved in this case who would show up to the courtroom and say, Oh, Thank God I'm going to get justice, right? Mm-hmm. Like, right? There's no IRS agent who's going to show up. Thank God we're going to get, you know, uh, the money that was owed to us. None of it. There's nothing there. And they're choosing to create this platform. And I'm sorry, but I, like, I watched Trump's speech that night at Mar a Lago. It was better than his announcement speech. Mm-hmm. He got to denounce all of his enemies, mix in his kind of emerging stump speech material, and he was, like, back. And, yeah. and like, I'm listening to it, and it's like, 95% of this is ungainsayable. Like, he is absolutely right. His critics behave worse than he does. And, and you know, like, he did not try to lock Hillary up. You know, he said he would. He shouldn't have said it. But he, now he, they're, he pressured. They're he, he pressured people, or at least you know talked about while he was president, 
uh, locking up his opponents, which was bad, but you're right. It was, it was a slogan. I think it was an unworthy slogan, but didn't actually do it. And, and here you have people in power uh, actually trying to do it. And, and Maddie, w- one interesting aspect of the debate here, you know, everything related to Trump is highly polarized. Everything related to our politics is highly polarized. But you've had not kind of a reasonable um, center-left pundits, but you've had hardcore progressive commentators saying, uh-oh, <laughs> this is not the slam dunk Democrats had hoped for. This is an adventurous legal theory. This is a bad idea. I think nobody but a rabid partisan can say anything other than that. I mean, Andy McCarthy pointed out that this is supposed to be about how Trump orchestrated a, a scheme with others to influence the 2016 election, but every single one of the 34 acts that are supposedly felonies happened after the election. So talk talk about amateurish. Um, I, I also just, it, every time Trump makes his way back to the number one news story, my heart just sinks. I mean, this is a guy who paid a porn star money to stay quiet about their adulterous affair. I mean, that's that's pretty repugnant. But but if you criminalize it, it's not a it's not a crime. If you criminalize it, you make him a victim. And Michael's exactly right. Him being able to use this as political capital is because everyone has lost trust in our institutions. And if they can criminalize people for political reasons, this is this is not a good thing. And it does make Trump the victim. It does in a distorted sort of way make him the good guy and mm-hmm. that's exactly what we're seeing here yeah and can, can, yes, can I just jump into if the the underlying crime that they supposedly want to use to turn this into a felony the campaign finance thing the standard is so high for that you have to prove that the payment was done and mischaracterized for the sole purpose of winning the election and yet we have Michael Cohn's own memoir showing that Donald Trump didn't want this coming out because he was embarrassed personally because he didn't want his wife to be humiliated and he didn't want his son Baron to watch his wife be humiliated in this way with this revelation coming out. So like we, even the guy who they might call to the witness stand to prove this has basically already exonerated Trump in public. Yeah, the the uh, you know you think about the losers <clears throat> from this episode. Um, Democrats are promoting the candidate they clearly want. They're more and more open about that. They they want Trump. The media, fantastic story, and go wall to wall the way you did fifteen and sixteen. Trump surging in the polls. Anyone who sympathizes with Trump backs Trump. The losers are non-Trump Republicans who want someone like DeSantis and Melania. <laughs> Melania is a clear, clear loser here. But Charlie, the the theory is, you know, the fraud was upon the American public, basically, uh, hiding this information. But I think if uh, this had come out in, in the immediate aftermath of the Access Hollywood tape, and the Stormy Daniels people weren't stupid, they realized that was their point of maximum leverage, you know, you can forget there are about a, a dozen women who came out and made various uh, accusations against Trump in that period. I don't think it would have made a, a big difference one way or the other. I think it would have made a difference if a Stormy Daniels had come out, you know, right before the the Iowa caucuses or something like that. But then just the 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 the, uh, the level of the prosecutorial abuse here, apparently not 
getting from the grand jury uh, a statement of probable cause of, about this other crime, uh, un, unspecified, uh, stacking uh, these counts in a way that's really frowned upon. Every single notation related to this, these falsified business records is stipulated as a count to try to make it sound really bad, to, to make a, a relatively minor attenuated defense into something that they can have a chyron on CNN about that says 34 counts against the former president of the United States. The indictment also keeps implying that it is illegal to take actions that benefit your campaign as a candidate, which it's not. I think this is a disgrace. I have no doubt that Donald Trump has done all sorts of terrible things. But the foundation of any liberal nation lies in the ability of its people and its institutions to distinguish between the crime and the man. And this indictment is weaker, not stronger, than we assumed it would be. Those who said, wait, you don't know what's in it, I suppose in a perverse way were right. Because whatever we assumed was in there, it's worse than that. Alvin Brack has made a profound mistake in every sense. And those who have spent the last five, six, seven years hoping that they're going to see Trump in an orange jumpsuit should be not only disappointed, but angry with him for having brought such a frivolous case, a case that I think is going to be dismissed before it gets to trial, or if it does go to trial, and if he is somehow convicted, next on appeal. Voters should be insulted by this behavior. It doesn't matter. And in fact, it hasn't mattered in the analysis, whether one likes or dislikes Donald Trump. I'm in the don't like camp. It doesn't and hasn't mattered whether one wants Donald Trump to be the Republican nominee or not. I'm in the not camp. I don't think I've ever seen such unanimity in the political press. When you have National Review on the same side as Mark Joseph Stern and Ian Milheiser, Ian Milheiser, who spent the first 100 days of Trump's administration tweeting out that he hadn't yet been arrested by Donald Trump, and if his Twitter account went silent, you could safely assume that that had changed. Yeah, maybe we should have a conference on this indictment where Ed Whalen and Mark Joseph Stern are on the same panel. <laughs> but when you have people like that saying, look, this is pretextual and novel and frivolous and unlikely to stand up. You know what is happening here. And I think this is really the culmination of what David French for a long time called Trump law, where in an attempt to highlight or make him pay for his very real transgressions against morality, and in some cases the Constitution and the rule of law, progressives have been willing to engage in behavior that makes them look as bad as he is. How many times did you hear people on the left saying, you know, if you plead the fifth, that means you're guilty? An idea that would have been anathema to them in 1990. Just because Donald Trump was the person they were talking about, or Donald Trump Jr., or someone connected to Donald Trump. And so we have it here. 
people who are in most cases against overcharging, people who are in most cases on the side of the defense and not the prosecution, people who do not like the frivolous or political use of the law, have pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed until Alvin Bragg responded to the political incentives and put this indictment out into the world for everyone to see. And in response, pretty much everyone has laughed. It has helped Donald Trump. Uh, We can debate whether or not that was its purpose. And it has opened a box that we don't want to be opened. So MBD, what does this do, just just, uh, more, more broadly, what do you think this does to our politics? The fact, I might argue with you about the percentage of Trump's speech at Mar-a-Lago that was unassailable. 95% sounds high to me, but some percentage of it was because he's making the case that the, the system is rigged, it's corrupted, um, it's been abused by people who hate him and hate his family and hate people who work for um, him and have, have gone out of their way to nail them um, in a way they, they wouldn't have with anyone else. And that's just true. It's just frankly true. So what, what, what does our politics do with that? How does that, how does that ramify here? Well, I mean, it, it, it gives Trump back any populist credibility he might have lost during his administration by collaborating with, you know, kind of normal Republicans on normal Republican priorities. So anyone who worried that he's been assimilated by the system, like this isn't a nice sign that the system is still set to try to reject him. And and that makes him appealing, uh, to a certain type of voter. Um, you know, I think his team and he himself are doing a good job of pointing out how, uh, you know, uh, of linking his travails, uh, which shouldn't be linked, <laughs> you know, no one else is paying porn stars mm-hmm. to shut up here, like, but the linking his travails to things that, uh, you know, the weaponization of the law or this kind of like general topsy turvy world that I think a lot of people feel they live in where liberals make rules that make no sense and only apply one way, right? Mm-hmm. Like whatever you can say, like, oh, this person can say person of color, but if I if I accidentally said colored person, I'm going to lose my job. Mm-hmm. Or you know, um, our HR codes at my uh, corporate job for a big firm, you know, preach color blindness in one paragraph and then color consciousness in the next paragraph. Mm-hmm. Like, like the, this whole thing seems designed just to ensnare me and to empower progressives. And I, so, yeah, it's, um, it's dangerous because it, 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 um, it invites the right toward, uh, or it tempts the right towards revolutionary means, right? Like the system has to be junked. We have to completely start over. We have to, you know, f- you know, drain the swamp is part of that, mm-hmm. um, uh, that, that slogan. The idea like 
Donald Trump will have to win and then fire everyone <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, in order to clean out the, the, the stables. And yeah, it makes our politics more radical. Um, and, you know, I would not be surprised if state, you know, a state attorney general or a red state attorney general starts looking for ways to get creative with Democrats. Um, yep. Now, I mean, there'll almost be a race for it. Um, yeah, it's, um, this is a dangerous road to go down because again, we are asking Trump, like I I said to Noah earlier in the week, we're asking Trump to comply with a process that everyone is saying should never have even taken place. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, that's just that's that's dangerous for democratic politics. So Charlie Cook, X question to you. Let's double barrel it. First barrel. How many times will Donald Trump get indicted? Once. This is it. It'd be uh, perverse to get to go back a second time. First time was experiment. Second would be perverse. Twice, three times, four times, or an extra bonus. I don't know how you get all the way up there, but five times. I think certainly more than once. And it's important to make a couple of points about that. The first one is that the imperative to treat each criminal case individually as the product of its facts and the laws that surround it cuts both ways. I think this case is extremely weak. I think Alvin Bragg in this instance has done far more damage to the law than Trump has been accused of doing in this case. But that doesn't mean that an indictment from a different jurisdiction with different facts on different grounds would be wrong. It's possible that the state of Georgia or the federal government could bring a case against Trump that is correct. And the fact that this one is not should not impinge upon that or prejudice it. So would you say two, three? Maybe two or three. The second point, though, is that what I have just said is how we should approach this. But we all know that politically speaking, Alvin Bragg has damaged anyone else out there who has a case he's preparing against Donald Trump. Suppose that the case out of Georgia is extremely strong. It's going to be hurt by this one. There must be people out there working on cases against Donald Trump who are cursing Alvin Bragg now for having brought the worst possible brief that he could first. So I think it's probably two or three. I don't think it can go any higher than that, because after a certain point, the public is going to see everything through the lens of the Alvin Bragg case and say, stop, just stop. So MBD, we got a two or three on the board. Yeah, I think three or four. Um, (laughs) Three or four. And I do think that as they start trying to schedule multiple court dates in December and January, like, um, that's also dangerous for our politics. That's right. When the primaries are really starting and it's, it's an attempt to force whoever is left in the Republican field to take a strong stand on each charge in a, on a debate stage. Right. Um, which either, uh, which which could cut every which way, uh, but it probably helps Trump because again the focus is on Trump and Trump's victimization, not on like 
you know, who's gonna, who's the more effective uh, conservative champion of policy or who is uh, more likely to win independent voters, right? It'll yeah. just be, well, is Trump being persecuted? Another way that this this is like 15 and 16 is, is so often with Trump, during his presidency too, you're like, how does he get out of this one? You know, it's a tight spot. Like, remember the, uh, after the Access Hollywood tape and there was going to be a debate and he was going to bring the Clinton, the Clinton women there. Like, how, how's that going to work? What's going to happen? You know, how well, possibly does he get out of the straitjacket? And this, this is exactly the same. Well, and, and, and the other thing is like the indictment itself reminded me of the Robert Mueller testimony, like when they yeah. unsealed it yeah, that was and sad. it was like, you right. saw the like faces on MSNBC start right. to go from like, Oh, this is great! To oh my gosh, yeah, this guy again! We, yeah, this guy we built up. That's you know. Not, Rich, can can yeah. I ask you what is your anticipated? Um, what do you think the likely consequence of a Trump court date in December if the primaries are really getting? It's got to help them, right? I mean, it. I, I would think it. I guess I'm of two minds of this. I, I, I think um, uh, it, it could be that the, the indictments, I, my number's three, I'll preempt, um, my, jump, jump ahead to my answer. Um, I think they, they could weigh on them, uh, weigh on him. And, and the Jack Smith, the independent counsel one, special counsel, could, could be a real serious case. I, I, I think Georgia is also going to be BS. I, I don't think that phone call was a violation of any any laws. But... You know, on the on the other hand, if this, especially your mind of the brag stuff, like right hard on debates and and a caucus, I don't know. It's I think it's gotta it's gotta help him. What do you think? Yeah, I think it helps him too. I just wondered because I saw you tweet about this, and I wasn't quite sure where you were coming down. Yeah, it, you know, it, it could really it could get tossed, but before then, on the other hand, it could drag on. You know, it could get pushed past the the election, and then you know. Well, I don't. Want, I don't want to get into that because that's going to be the, the second barrel. Of the uh, the questions. Let's go to Maddie. We have a two, or, two or three, a three or a four, and I, I come down very firmly. Three. Where are you? I would say two or three. Two or three. All right. A judicious two or three. So Charlie, if Trump's the nominee, can he win a general election? No. No. I, of course, will add the usual caveat. What happens if there is a terrible recession or a crash in the housing market? And as Bob Dole did in 1996, Joe Biden falls off a stage or something. Yeah, anything can happen. But the, the key here is independence. And you know, they're not going to be voting in the primary, but they're sure as hell going to be voting in the general. And I think that Trump has a ceiling now because of them that cannot be victorious. MBD, can he win a general? Um, Charlie's right, but because anything ha can happen, it will. I mean, uh, like, uh, I, also, I also just, you know, uh, let me slip into my usual thing where God is a player character in our universe. <laughs> and the more that Democrats work to make Trump the nominee in order to benefit themselves, the more likely God will teach them once again that this is a horrible idea. Nemesis. And he'll he'll not only win he'll not only win, but he'll be he'll be like much more effective in his second term. 
Um, like I, I'm sorry. It's just like I, I feel like I'm watching that train wreck again, and I feel like the lesson is just as likely to land on Democratic apparatchiks as it is on Republican primary voters. Maddie, I, I don't think so. Uh, I apply the same caveats, but I just, I just don't see how you win enough people in a general election running on victimhood and the last election was stolen. Uh, I, th- I think you certainly can rail up your base, but beyond that, I'm not sure. So obviously a hugely risky choice. I would say it can win just because, I mean, a recession would just kneecap Biden and some sort of health event, a fall, you know, you don't want to happen. Could happen to any of us. We, you know, take the wrong step, but he could easily have a McConnell type event, you know, a bad, a bad fall, concussion, rehab facility for weeks. I mean, how's that going to play? And I take the point that there are not many uh, new Trump voters out there, we can assume, but there's some people who could flake off of of Biden, right? That it's, there's some possibility of a third party candidacy. So I, I do not discount the possibility of Trump winning a general at all. Biden that, might be primary. Yeah. What's that? Biden could be primary. What's the chatter at the moment? RFK Jr. and Joe Manchin both thinking of uh, taking him on. That would hurt. So, Charlie, let's go to you for uh, a word from our friends at ExpressVPN. Absolutely. Well, I use ExpressVPN on all of my devices. Most of them are connected to it right now, in fact. And I'll tell you why. Because if there was someone out there who kept a log of every single thing you did, every single minute of every single day, that would be pretty creepy, right? Well, there is. What have I told you? That's exactly what happens every time you go online. Your internet provider, that's the cable that comes into your house, is allowed to store logs of every website you've ever visited, and it can legally sell this data to anyone. But if you use ExpressVPN, you can stop them doing it. Essentially, ExpressVPN reroutes your internet connection through its secure servers, so your internet provider can't see or log what you do online. Now, of course, you might be wondering, well, if I'm routing all my data through a VPN, then doesn't that just mean that the VPN sees what I'm doing and log my data instead? Aren't you essentially paying for ExpressVPN to spy on you? Well, some VPNs do that, but ExpressVPN doesn't. And it's not one of those VPNs that claims to have a no-logs policy but actually is secretly logging you. It is the only VPN to trust because it uses trusted server technology. This is the first major VPN provider to engineer all of their VPN servers to run in RAM, which makes it impossible for the VPN service to store any data, including logs of any ExpressVPN customer because it all gets wiped out of memory pretty quickly. And you don't have to take my word for it or ExpressVPN's word for it. ExpressVPN is so confident in its no-logs claim that it's even had one of the biggest assurance firms in the world, PricewaterhouseCoopers, audit its technology. And it's rated number one by CNET, Tech Radar, and countless others. So if you want to stop letting people keep logs of what you do online, visit expressvpn.com slash editors right now. And find out how you can get three months free. That's ExpressVPN, E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash editors to learn more. So MBD, not happy news on the electoral front. Let's go to Wisconsin 
First, obviously, very close state for a very long time, but Republicans had the upper hand in the Scott Walker era, made a lot of really important advances, and it is all washing away in front of our eyes, the latest being this uh, Supreme Court race where a Democrat won handily, which is going to give progressives a majority on the Supreme Court, seem to be two, two issues, among others, that, that really cut one abortion uh, was, yep. was a major emphasis and clearly hurt. And then the Republican candidate had an association with uh, Stop the Steal, <coughs> represented folks challenging the um, 2020 results in Wisconsin, I believe that would make sense. And that, that didn't help either. Yeah. And listen, this is like the combined wrath of, you know, moderate voters, I think, on we're getting a lot of fuzz on abortion as like one of these primary drivers. I know, uh, Ian Coulter has made like a very strong argument that, uh, Republican legislatures are going too far, uh, and are driving away voters. Um, I think that's actually overstated. I think, um, a lot of it has to do with the initial shock of the Dobbs, uh, ruling and, and, allowing Republicans to be seen as the the anti-status quo party, and they took a hit for it. I think that ends soon, that penalty. Uh, but I do think the, like, the bigger problem is the Stop the Steal stuff, is the sort of uh, noxious cloud of, like, extremism and uh, paranoia, uh, that just alienates middle of the road voters, right? Like, I mean, and, and in fact, like it, it alienates, you know, people you would call small C conservatives, right? People who basically worked hard, have achieved some measure of success in life and basically have faith in the system. Don't want anything dramatic to happen. And you have Republicans basically talking as if, um, you know, they're ready to charge up Bunker Hill um, and launch a new revolution. So, uh, yeah, I think I think it's a serious problem, but I don't think we should over-blame the cause for life. And I do think, you know, it goes back to something we were saying even before the Dobbs ruling, which is that a lot of elected Republicans just do not know how to defend this issue uh, in public, they're afraid to do so, and they they needn't be, um, and we shouldn't let ourselves get bullied. I mean, I've had people in the last two days say like, "Oh, we should retreat to like an eighteen week ban," and it's like, you know what, you know, just raise it all the way then, because then you're saying like we are going to ban all but three percent. Mm -hmm. We're we're going to allow all but three percent of abortions. It's like that is not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That is not a, a worthy goal. And by the way, 18-week abortions are disgusting, like are, are, are repulsive and are very difficult to defend um, in any but the most exotic circumstances. So the, the, the stop the steal lie, the, the dynamic there is, is very noxious because it's a killer. It's absolute killer for Republican candidates around the country. We've seen it again and again. At the same time, it benefits the source of the lie, Donald Trump, because it, you know, it takes away um, 
what should be one of the main lines of criticism against him that he lost the 2020 election. So, so he benefits at the same time. Uh, the 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 influence of, of this thing is absolutely horrid in terms of Republican electoral prospects. And Charlie, you made this point in a post about Wisconsin. Okay, let's take the hit on on abortion. We can argue about how much, how much of the hit there is, but there's worthy. That's worthy ground to fight on. And if you um, lose some, okay, so be it. It's it's that consequential an issue. But why why are we losing? Um, uh, by our association with Donald Trump. What's the upside there? Yeah, I think there are two points to make on this. The first one is that if you make substantial changes in the political order, you're going to pay a price for it. America has a status quo bias. Americans, even those who are on the left, are small c conservative in some ways. They don't like change. The purpose of political power is to affect change or to stop the other side from affecting change that it prefers. And there are consequences for that. For 50 years, the American conservative movement, and for most of that time, the Republican Party as well, had sought to overturn Roe. This was not only a legitimate use of power, because Roe was a violation and undermining of the Constitution, but it was a morally necessary use of political power as well. But we do not live in a country full of pro-lifers. The American public was not where the Roe decision forced it to be, but it is not where Michael and you and Maddie and I are either. And the consequence of having overturned Dobbs is that there are many people out there who are angry about it and who are worried that their state legislature is going to use the power that has been returned to it to affect policy uh, of which they disapprove. Now, I don't think it is a particular problem for conservatives to take some blows on the chin for having achieved this half-century-long goal. I expect that. I don't think that lets off the Republicans who have been absolutely appallingly negligent in not preparing a position or a strategy in the wake of the overturning of Roe, which seemed inevitable for quite a while and was, in fact, leaked. <laughs> so they knew it was coming. But I do think that we should not panic at the response. As you say, there is no such case for Donald Trump. You can say reasonably that you think that fixing Social Security would be worth some serious losses at the polls. You can say that because our debt is unsustainable, because there are automatic cuts coming to entitlements if we don't, because you want to protect future generations in the economy in the long run, and all of that. And you can say, as a result, to achieve this end in a meaningful way, we are prepared to lose some elections. You just can't transmute that into a case for a candidate. There is no such thing as a candidate who is worth the loss. Candidates are vessels. Candidates are employees. You put them out there to represent your views and advance your agenda, and you hope that they win. If they can't win, there is no point in them. I think that what we have seen in Wisconsin is a combination of this virtuous uh, blowback and this pointless blowback. 
The second point that I would make is that the the combination of Trump and abortion is an unsustainable one for a political party. It is simply not the case that every presidential candidate who has ever won or every party that has gained a majority in the states or at the federal level has had a perfectly ideologically coherent set of ideas that resonated with the American public. Voters don't think like that. Voters are prepared to overlook certain parts of a party's platform if they like the other bits. And they're especially prepared to overlook certain parts of a party's platform if they like and trust the people who would be implementing it. So, for example, regional differences notwithstanding, it didn't particularly hurt Brian Kemp that he signed a six-week abortion ban in Georgia. He still won by eight points. The same was true in Ohio, where Mike DeWine won by more than 20 points. But if you combine a message that is in some particulars unpopular, and in many parts of this country, Republicans' position on abortion is unpopular, with a candidate that is mistrusted, or that is deemed to be wild or crazy or disrespectful toward the country's constitutional order, you are going to lose. There is just a big difference between Ronald Reagan holding a position on abortion that was unpopular in the country at large in 1980 and in 1984, and Donald Trump doing it, or Herschel Walker doing it. And until Republicans recognize this, they are going to lose winnable elections. We are not a movement that has full public support on everything. We do have full public support on a whole bunch of issues. But if you don't want to drop the ones that are unpopular, if you don't want, as Michael says, just to abandon the abortion issue, to abandon the crusade for life, then you have to find ways of selling it. Now, one of those ways is to actually have a platform, which we don't. One of those ways is to demand of your politicians that they know what they're talking about, that they've thought it through, which they haven't. The second is to ensure that you're not starting four or five points down by picking candidates that the public doesn't like and doesn't trust. And I think what happened in Wisconsin was we saw a combination of these two things and the results that followed. And if we don't fix it, that's going to keep happening. So, Maddie, let's go from Republicans' uh, electoral troubles to Democrats' uh, electoral troubles or at least uh, radicalism. So out in Chicago, we were all heartened a couple months ago. Democratic primary, Lori Lightfoot gets 17%, gets utterly wiped out. Uh, I, I think a lot of people thought, we said on this podcast, wow, here, here we go. Here's an instinct for self-preservation, even in Chicago, that's been beset by this uh, crime wave that's been much worse than other major cities. Then we get the election and you get this this radical Democrat who's a tool of the teachers' unions, in fact, an employee of the teachers' unions, funded by the, the teachers' unions, who wants an enormous uh, tax hike and an already heavily taxed city, who is a defund the police person, although he now says it's not defund, it's, it's a, quote, holistic approach to public safety, which means, you know, uh, please you know, look over your shoulder wherever you go <laughs> in, in Chicago. And he wins against uh, an establishment candidate who would have brought a kind of normality, you hope, uh, to public policy in Chicago and wins pretty handedly. 
Yeah, I mean, I was definitely among those who who was uh, rashly optimistic with the downfall of Laurie Lightfoot. But um, yeah, this is this is definitely a step back. Um, I think his success can be explained uh, in part by just having outspent uh, Valance. I mean, there was he raised something like over ten million dollars, um, and ninety one percent of that came from the unions. So. Um, there was a, a lot of money behind him, but he also actually played the the race card to to great effect as well. Um, any criticism Vallis made was just met with "You're dismissing me as a black man," and that <laughs> that can be sort of exhausting in a in a campaign, and and, and was in this uh, case. So, MBDX, question to you: The future of Chicago is Detroit? Yes or no? Uh, yes. It is going to continue to bleed to cities like Columbus, Nashville, Austin, um, and Atlanta. Charlie? Rich, you have once again fulfilled your obligation as a host who downplays or ignores it when I'm right. (laughs) By not coming to me. What did I say about this when Laurie Lightfoot lost? I said I didn't care because there was no sign that this was likely to be anything other than a case in which one crazy right. lefty. I forgot, I forgot your rant against blue city voters. Well, it's not so much against blue city voters per se. I just didn't believe that they were going to make a change. I thought that they were going to replace one crazy with another crazy. And that's precisely what has happened. I, I don't care what you say, Charlie. I'm still sticking by my guns that Jim Garrity was more right about the 2020 election than, than, than you were. I forget, I forget my standard now. It's That's very, uh, it's very it's hurtful. disappeared in the mist of time. Maddie Kearns. Um, sorry, Rich. Uh, I, I was so interested in Charlie's answer that I forgot the <laughs> question. Chicago, you know, I, that's okay. I almost forgot it myself. Is Chicago, <laughs> is the future of Chicago, Detroit? Yes or no? Uh, yes. I'm going to say no. I'm going to say it, it has uh, a little bit more on the ball than than Detroit and won't fall all the way to that level, but it will take steps towards Detroit, no doubt. With that, let's hear from our second sponsor of this episode, Babbel. So as I've mentioned before on the podcast, I've been going through a bit of a Middle Ages phase, and I'd really like to take a trip, if it were possible, to Aachen, the primary imperial residence of Charlemagne, now a city on the westernmost edge of Germany. If you have an upcoming summer trip abroad, your go-to travel hack should be Babbel. Whether you're a seasoned traveler or embarking on your first adventure, communication is key, obviously, to fully experiencing a new culture. That's where Babbel comes in. Babbel is the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. Thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons, there's still time to learn a new language before you reach your destination. With Babbel, you only need 10 minutes to complete a lesson so you can start having real-life conversations in as little as three weeks. Babbel's expertly crafted lessons are built around real life. You learn how to have practical conversations about travel, relationships, business, and more. Other language learning apps use AI for the lesson plans, but Babbel's lessons were created by over 150 language experts and voiced by real native speakers, not computers. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven 
to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, plus Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accent. There's so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to Babbel. Dot com slash editors. That's babble.com slash editors for up to 55% off your subscription. Babble language for life. Please check it out. So Maddie, we had this uh, great event <laughs> this week where there's this uh, gay guy, Dylan Mulvaney, who prances around uh, in this uh, minstrel-like parody of uh, what, what girls act like or supposed to act like. And for some reason, it's just become... A thing, you know, like a major influencer. Everyone needs to bow down to this guy and that uh, ridiculous uh, daytime um, uh, TV host did, who used to be an actress. Um, what's Drew her name? Drew Barrymore. Yeah, Drew, Drew Barrymore. And we had Bud Light uh, sending Dylan Mulvaney a special can with his face on it and she, she did a couple um he, he did a couple excuse me he did a couple videos about uh, wow this is so amazing um bud light uh joked around about march madness did one in a, a bathtub so what maddie i want you to to use your imagination take us into the conversation that happened at madison avenue where these uh, these ad executives making millions of dollars tell this down market um beer brand that I, I don't think anyone really goes out of their way to drink you know you show up at a barbecue they have bud light you drink bud light you know it's like all they're selling at the stadium you buy a bud light you know it's not like uh um you know an, an upscale in the trans kind of brand you would think but someone's like i got a genius idea let's do something to identify ourselves with this this guy pretending to be a girl who's extremely online and have Kid Rock the next day take out a submachine gun and shoot up a bunch of cases of Bud Light. That's what we should do. How did that conversation go? Well, um, I, I don't know, but I think it's fair to say that they misjudged their target consumer. Um, obviously, advertisements, advertisement companies have used very attractive, hyper-feminine women to sell products that are aimed at men, uh, sex sells. Um, unfortunately, transgenderism does not sell because what everybody sees is not a very hyper-feminine sort of male fantasy of the girl next door, which, which is what most of the, this ad advertising does. They see a man, they see a, a gay man dress up as a woman. And that's for heterosexual men who like to drink beer and watch sports is just not really very appealing. <laughs> so it's an epic fail in that regard. It's also just curious to me that women and, and certainly feminists resent that, uh, that use of female sexuality as, as a way to sort of it, they think it cheapens it they think you're, you're using stereotypes mm -hmm. you're reducing what it means to be a woman to to the male sexual fantasy this is insulting we don't like this and yet for some reason uh when a man adopts all these same stereotypes and claims not only adopts the stereotypes as in the case of humor um 
but it adopts the stereotypes in order to claim authentic female experience. For some reason, this is a great uh, triumph of feminism. In fact, it, this is not the only case of this. We've not just seen Dylan Mulvaney be, be used for, for Bud Light. He's been used for uh, Kate Spade, the, the women's clothing brand. Uh, there's other examples of, of male males. Nike apparently just did it, right? Yes, uh, Nike, and you had the the Canada's um, Hershey's in Canada had a, had a man to to launch their Women's Month mm -hmm. chocolate brand or whatever. L'Oreal did one um, in England with Monroe Bergdorf, who's just one of the most unpleasant activists, male activists on the scene. It's it's just a, it's a strange fad. I, th I think that what happens is the people who suggest this, the the young hip people who say, hey. Uh, you know what's a really good idea? What's really hot right now is this TikTok influencer, and maybe some mm -hmm. old, older guys are going. Really? Yes. This is well. I suppose that's that's sort of what uh, the male fantasy of women is. But there is one well, crucial well, difference. Who, yeah. But who can think that that's the male fantasy of a woman? So how do we go from you know way before your time? But there's an iconic. Pepsi ad, uh, it might have been a Super Bowl ad originally, of Cindy Crawford, who is actually the male fantasy of, of a woman, you know, uh, uh, sauntering up on a hot day and drinking a Pepsi really uh, slowly, okay? I, I can see how ad exec is like, yeah, let, let's do that. But how do you get, how is Dylan Mulvaney anyone's fantasy of, of a woman, except for his own? Because we've reduced sex to... Uh to, to gender stereotypes, basically, we've, we've reduced sex to a costume. Um, so if you if you wear the costume, if you perform the way that he performs, that's that's literally supposed to be femininity at its peak. That's supposed to be the female ideal. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. Uh, it's not true, and it's manifestly not true. In that, I think most heterosexual men recoil from it women recoil from it as well but for for different reasons they recoil from it as a sort of uh infringement on their dignity and a, a sort of mockery of of what they are but i think men just think well that's not attractive that's there's something weird and and, and creepy about that yeah so med i think it's for most men it's 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 uh you, you know you'll never buy a bud light again if you're thinking about that <laughs> uh, those influencer videos yeah, I mean, it is, it's very interesting in that, like, these companies chose to highlight Dylan Mulvey at the very moment, like, a huge swath of the country has decided trans acceptance is actually a danger to, ch to children, right? Like, not that this is just like an edgy cultural thing. But that actually we're in an active campaign already of pushing against this. Uh, there, you know, there are active campaigns in two dozen states to tighten up the laws about um, minor transition uh, surgery or prescription drugs, etc. And it, it's it's just astonishing. It's like it's it's like advertising that you are against half the country. And it's, I, I found it odd too in that, you know, some people pushed back and said like, oh, Dylan is, uh, you know, he, he's past the age of majority. He can do what he wants and live what he wants. And wh why are we bothering about this? And that might've flown 
say if this was a decade ago or two dec you know two decades ago and we were talking about the the drag personality RuPaul right who's been around for you know been a celebrity for 20 years who's married who regularly switches between you know presenting as a male and presenting as a drag queen um but that's because RuPaul was associated with drag and with nightclubs and cabaret and completely adult spaces. Whereas Dylan is being put forward as like a slightly more mature version of potentially your trans child. And we're mm -hmm. like legitimate. Yeah, yeah, acts like a teenage girl. Right. And we're legitimating and it's you being, he's being used and putting himself forward to be used to legitimate this much more expansive and invasive and dangerous concept of gender play to, you know, pubescence and prepubescence. And, and so, yeah, that's why he's getting a ton more pushback than you might've seen for like a drag star that was, you know, mm -hmm. uh, associated yeah. only with adult, um, you know, kink or like I said, cabaret culture. Uh, this is entirely different and it is, insidious right like it it, it, it um that's that is the difference mm -hmm. charlie i don't have a particularly well-formed or eloquent theory about this other than that i find it revolting i'm completely baffled by it i don't know what that is i don't know why it's happening and i don't know why it's being endorsed and encouraged and that is a man in a dress prancing around badly with this absurd psychopathic joker grin on his face, insisting things that aren't true, like that he's been a woman for 336 days, having bubble baths, pretending he has periods. And I'm now seeing this picked up by Nike and Bud Light. And I just don't know what's going on. I honestly, I feel 90 years old. You know, when you talk to... <laughs> When you talk to really old people and they say, I've had a good life and it's probably time for me to pop my clogs because I just don't understand anything anymore. It's not like it was in 1930. I feel like that at the age of 38. The, the idea that this is in some way attractive is preposterous. And that, that is not the body of a woman, which is the implication in the Nike video. That is the body of a prepubescent boy. I, you know, I, I actually think that what worries me more than the idea that Nike and Bud Light and others believe that this might help them sell beer or sports bras or what you will, is that they think that it won't. And what I mean by that is that Bud Light is presumably aware of who drinks Bud Light and when. I mean, I'm not a Bud Light fan, but the three circumstances in my life in which I drink Bud Light are <laughs> when I am hunting, when I am at a football game, or when I'm at a barbecue with other men. Now, I don't think that has much to do with the Dylan Mulvaney minstrelsy show. <laughs> And I think Bud Light knows this. So why would they do it? And the only conclusion at which I can arrive is that they have done it to pay off 
whatever pressure is coming their way, to tick that box. In other words, they are so worried about this extremely, and it is extremely, narrow sliver of elite cultural pressure and advocacy that sometimes ranges in perverse ways into law, that they have decided to damage their brand by indulging it so that they can say that they have. That's the only thing that makes sense to me because there is not a marketing agency in the world who would look at this, contrast it with the market research and say, yes, that's what we need to do. And when we have reached that point at which companies are making decisions that adversely affect their bottom line, then something has gone really, really wrong. But isn't, it, isn't this like an extension, though, like it, a natural extension of the way corporations have totally gone in for Pride Month and Pride, you know, season, and, and maybe soon it'll be Pride Year, I don't know. Um, like, there is this... Um, there is this pattern to liberalism, and I know the name will make Charlie wretch, but Patrick Deneen is right that liberalism has this pattern, or progressivism has this pattern of we have to constantly present the new provocation in order to get a reaction and triumph over it. And mm -hmm. pride is done, right? Like, Americans accept yeah. even the NHL, even the NHL is doing pride. That's how done it right. is. Right, exactly. Pride is done. It's it's been accepted by the American people, whether enthusiastically or uh, you know the cow like acquiescence of people who are maybe a little bit surly about it. Um, and who so could now you it's possibly like possibly be thinking of Michael. Yeah, who? Um, you know, and now. They have to present the next thing, the next civil mm -hmm. rights struggle, the next political vanguard, and it is transgenderism, which is nuts. So it's it's for like, the record. My, my objection to that is not that that doesn't describe left li liberalism. I just don't think that Denise's criticisms of classical liberalism's right. uh, flaws are so, correct. Well, no, well, no. Trans is done in the sense that you're you're saying pride is done, Michael. When the the Philadelphia Flyers and invite Dylan to to drive the Zamboni at the Wells Fargo Center, you know, <laughs> it, during intermission, a game against the Rangers. So, Maddie, uh, last thing on this is this. Um, you know, a lot of the trans stuff has been international phenomenon, at least in the advanced West. Is, is this something? That's, are you aware? Is this something that's happening elsewhere? You know, is this happening in Norway or the UK where, where corporations are going out of their way to associate themselves with trans influencers? I mean, yes, it is. But there is a lot more ferocious backlash in certainly in the UK. I, I, I'm not so sure about uh, some of those other countries. But in the UK, the the feminist um, objection or the, or the women's uh, rights objection, which I've you know, laid out that it's it's. Um, it's basically sort of like a uh, blackface, but instead of mm -hmm. racial, racial, it's sexual. Exactly. You're, you're, um, you're, you're degrading the female sex by reducing it to this, this costume and appropriating it. And, and, and again, not doing so for the purpose of humor or satire, but doing so as a actual truth claim. Um, and people are very, very upset about that. People from the left are very, very upset about that. And, uh, it's not the sort of thing that you can get away with. So I, I think mm -hmm. that it's that's partly why it's less uh, audacious than it is here. 
Yeah, I mean, just the idea of of some dude is going to sell sell a sports bra to, to you <laughs> as, as a woman. It's just it's it should be outrageously insulting. MBD, your guess. The next big corporation to uh, reach out and, and make Dylan an influencer will be Delta Airlines, Disney, Taco Bell, or Apple. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> Taco Bell. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine the, like, the, like, you know, hey, transphobes, blow it out your rear, like, sassiness. Um I don't know. I would have guessed something more like Merck or like some pharmaceutical company that is like, <laughs> you know, like here, like side effects may include, you know, suicidal depression, uh, you know, uh, weight weight gain, etc. But still, gender suppression drugs. Yeah, Charlie, Delta, Disney, Taco Bell, or Apple. I don't know. I I think this is going to disappear over time because I don't and look, I'm often wrong about this. But I don't think But even if you're right, I'll ignore it. So, so don't worry. I don't think you can brute force this one. One of the things I've seen floating around among trans activists is the idea that if you're a straight man or a straight woman for that matter and you don't want to have sex with a trans person that you're a bigot and i have thought since i first saw this that 99.9 percent of people are going to say okay then i'm a bigot you can't push them into that they're not going to do it and i don't think that you can push them into liking this either i think there is something viscerally off-putting about this so I suspect that none of those companies, those are big companies, will will do this. I suspect that it will continue to bounce around fashion and you know, the beer one is an odd one. And beer of, and fashion and beer companies. <laughs> no, it's I mean I'm undermining my own argument because beer is a I would never have guessed in a million years that they'd have done that. But I do think that they will probably have acknowledged the response and other companies will have learned from it. So, Matt, if you have to guess, Delta, Disney, Taco Bell, Apple. So I would have said Disney were it not for the fact that I imagine they're sort of confrontation averse at this point. Um, yeah. But they, they certainly make the most sense, right? They they have a performative... Just the fact uh, that you're saying that would have been so alien to Walt Disney in 1962. <laughs> no, I mean, it makes the most sense for Mulvaney that he would want right. to uh, partner up. It certainly doesn't make any sense for for a child company to do it. But, this, but that's, what, that's what his aesthetic is. That's what he's going for, is the two-dimensional, I'm a girly girl, yay! You know, that's, that's his view of... Feminacy, that's what he's, what he's going for. So that would make sense from his perspective. It would be catastrophic, I think, for Disney because parents um, would recoil in, in horror if they haven't already at some of the Disney content. Um, but uh, given that Bud Light kind of came out of left field, I mean, <laughs> let's go Taco Bell. 
That's my Taco answer. Bell. We got two Taco Bells. <laughs> wow. So I'm going to say process elimination. It's Delta because I think Maddie is absolutely right. Disney was on the trajectory for for this kind of thing <laughs> before they they got hit by a two by four uh, with a two by four by Ron DeSantis. Now they're uh, confused and cautious. So no Disney. I, I think Taco Bell is too commonsensical. Who knows? You know, if, if Bud Light, maybe Taco Bell. But I'm going to say no Taco Bell. Apple's too busy kowtowing to the Chinese, so they're busy with that. So process elimination. I'm going to say. Delta. With that, let's hit a few other things before we go. MBD, you have been reading the uh, near forbidden works of Raoul Dahl. Yes, um, not because that they uh, are trying to boulderize them, uh, but just because my daughter started picking them off the shelf, and one of them was chosen as reading in her classroom, uh, and she's at the perfect age and. I think I'm at the perfect age to enjoy reading them to her at night. Um, you know, I, I, I specifically liked, um, you know, there are moments when children laugh at Roald Dahl books, like when they describe Augustus Gloop as fat and disgusting. And then there are moments when adults laugh as when um, somebody invents a uh, robot to uh, aggressively pull at anything that has gold in it. And it accidentally attacks a duchess and then is destroyed by a mob. Uh, that caused me to laugh. Um, so yeah, Roald Dahl um, was a, a complica complicated figure, but one of the geniuses of children's literature. So Maddie, you have been playing family board games. Yes. So we have my parents staying with us just now, and we grew up um, playing a lot of board games. And one of the, the games we play is called Articulate. Um, love that game which is such a great game uh, actually highly recommend getting it if <laughs> if you haven't got it but basically you just have um, categories and you're in teams and you have to describe the word that's in front of you and it gets very competitive uh, very lively and so we've been having a lot of fun with that Charlie your seven-year-old is into baseball must be the pitch clock <laughs> I'm pro pitch clock I was opposed to much of the rest of the changes he has been playing baseball now for a couple of years but for some reason he never quite put what he had learned and what he was seeing when i had the yankees on together but i don't know why five days ago i had the yankees game on and he without me having to explain it to him worked out what all of the numbers and graphics on the screen meant in the scoreboard and I mean, obviously at his level, they're not doing this. So worked out how a double play worked mm. and intuited a lot of the rules and really as a result got into it. Once you know the rules, it's a lot easier to become enthusiastic about it. So this has taught me a couple of things. The first one is you really can propagandize your kids because he started telling his friends and strangers, waitresses, I'm a Yankees fan. Our family is Yankees fans. We're Yankees fans. You can bring them up that way. Uh, the second thing is that football is much harder to learn than baseball because I've spent quite a lot of time explaining to him what's happening in football, and he's still largely lost. But with baseball, he worked it out. Uh, and the, the rules that he didn't know or hadn't learned or hadn't experienced, he sort of worked out by process of elimination. So I saw Cocaine Bear, the movie, 
<laughs> and it's pretty, pretty terrible. Although if you squint the right way, you could see how it'd be good. Because, you know, it's tempting to be a dark comedy. It's just, it's just not amusing enough, although there are occasionally amusing moments. It, uh, I'll go as far as say, if, if you're in desperate straits, it is, will be worth a, a watch on a airplane someday. Maybe Delta, if you're still flying Delta. <laughs> After Dylan Mulvaney does the yeah. safety announcement. <laughs> oh, yes, that, that's the, na- yeah, absolutely. So with that, it's time for our editor's picks. MBD, what's your pick? Uh, my pick once again is Armand White on Succession and its discontents. Um, I watch Succession. Uh, I find it very enjoyable to watch in a weird way because it's just, it's written in a clever way and it's it's filmed in a clever way but uh ultimately i actually bow down to armand white's take that it um is just appallingly uh cynical and never rises the 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 creators of the show are indulging in the same cynicism that they claim to satirize maddie what's your pick my pick is John McCormack's piece on Wisconsin, and he sort of uh, makes the case that um, it was a, a big hit, but uh, not necessarily uh, reason to lose all hope for uh, uh, future elections. So, Charlie? My choice is by Christian Schneider. It's called, We Need a National Conversation About National Conversations, pushing back against what he calls a progressive clutch. They insist that we must all be talking about what they want us to talk about instead of what we are, in fact, talking about. And that sometimes we are indeed having the national conversations that they want us to have. It's just that they don't like the way that they're going. And his conclusion is that we should ignore the central planners and talk about whatever the hell we want. So my pick is the first three parts of Dan McLaughlin's five-part, maybe it's going to have more parts, a series on the brag indictment, just incredibly meticulous, exhaustive, and authoritative. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National U podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this game without the express written permission of National U magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shuddy, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Maddie. Thank you, MBD. Thanks to ExpressVPN and Babbel. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors, and happy Easter, everyone.